Welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking to Yanir Bar Yam, who's the president of the New England Complex Systems Institute. I've been wanting to talk to Yanir for a long time. Uh, what they try and understand there is how, when you have things like ecosystems, like you know, climate or markets, things where there are so many variables that it's impossible to actually enumerate every single variable and understand each one of them. Instead, you have to look at overall patterns and to try and understand you know, what are the important variables that are actually changing things and why. Uh, it's a fascinating subject. It actually, to a large extent, it requires you to learn how to see things in a completely new way, right? To see networks, to see systems, uh, rather than seeing sort of individual things. Because we, the way we think about things, for the most part, is um, we break things down to their constituent elements, and we try and understand those elements. And then we, the idea is that we can sort of put it back together and understand the whole. But um, I think as you'll see in my conversation with Yanir, uh, the the complexity of the systems that we are subject to at the moment um, that are governing our lives increasingly is such that we can no longer understand things in that way. Right, so uh, Yanir has, among other things, he's worked with the SEC on trying to understand market failures, um, big crashes in the stock market. He's worked uh, with the CDC and other government organizations to understand uh, big pandemics, you know, the Ebola outbreak. I mean, just a very fascinating guy. So um, very good conversation. I hope, make sure you drink a lot of coffee before you listen to this one. It's, uh, it's, it's thick. <laughs> try and try and keep up. Um, okay. But before we get to that conversation, uh, we, a word from our sponsors, as they say, today's episode is brought to you by our sponsors. Uh, first one is Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers online courses for all levels. Uh, and he can, no matter where you are, he can move you very quickly towards taking better pictures. And he'll teach you how to take very good pictures, how to um, develop them afterwards in different software programs so that they look fantastic. I've seen people sort of extend their skill level rapidly working with him. If you're interested in photography, definitely um, check that out. Today's episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Uh, Good Mix is a naturopath, sort of formulated uh, custom superfood. It's a mixture of seeds and nuts. It's um, very sort of low-carb, paleo it's good for anybody. I mean, I, I have it every breakfast, um, but it's especially good if you have any kind of um, digestive problems like irritable bowel syndrome or things like that. It promotes um, gut health, <laughs> as they say. It's uh, very, very good for your, your digestion. If you use the discount code LIKEVILLE15, you can get a 15% discount on your order. Today's episode is also brought to you by... Elsa's Bar. Elsa's, if you live in Montreal, you probably 
know about it. It's my favorite bar in the city. It's we actually bought our place in part because it was close to Elsa's. It's in the middle of the Plateau neighborhood, sort of like the the hipster neighborhood in town. Uh, it's on Roy Street. They have wonderful atmosphere, really good food, uh, just an all-around fantastic place. Uh, check it out if you're in Montreal or you're going to be visiting Montreal. Today's episode is also brought to you by Café Lalie, Carré uh, des Artistes, Galerie d'Art. This is a family-owned fine art gallery slash café in St. Henry. It's that neighborhood, up-and-coming neighborhood in the city right by Atwater Market, right by the Lachine Canal. Has great food, fantastic art, really interesting place. It's a mother-daughter business, right? The mother runs the art gallery and the daughter runs the cafe. So check it out if you're in St. Henry. Uh, today's episode is also brought to you by our Patreon uh, supporters. If you're not a Patreon supporter, you should be. We need your money. Uh, go to www.patreon.com slash Likeville podcast. You can also support us by leaving a review, a positive review, of course, on iTunes. Um, you can um, also join our Facebook group. Just put in Likeville. You'll find us. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Likeville pod. And we will keep you apprised of various developments, future guests. You can ask questions, things like that. Um, And also for people that become Patreon supporters, there are various things like video versions of our interviews, extra bits of interviews that were not put uh, on the regular, on the sort of limited time, extra parts that will be there. So uh, join up. All right. All right. Without further ado, I give you Yanir Bar-Yam. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking to Yanir Bar-Yam from the New England Complex Systems Institute. Hello, Yanir. Hi. How are Hi. You it's, so, it's so great to finally talk to you. I've, you... I've been told by by Jaffer, by Nassim, by Joe, all these people, you've come very, very highly recommended. So I've been looking forward to this this conversation. Now, one thing I I know our listeners are immediately going to be mystified by, so is what exactly is the study of complexity and complex system? Like, what is it? So... um... For somebody who knows nothing at all, like what it is, like what what is it? Well, so, so the challenge in explaining it is that it's sort of a conceptual shift, but the conceptual shift is driven by a mathematical statement. And that statement is that the math of statistics and uh, its partner calculus don't describe the real world. Um, Now, to say that statistics doesn't describe the real world probably isn't surprising to people. Um, The question, however, is what do you do if you want to go beyond statistics? And it turns out that there is a a whole bunch of things that you need to think about um, once you go beyond the assumption of statistics. Because basically what statistics assumes is that things are independent 
correlations are kind of a first-order way of dealing with how things depend on each other, and not very well. But you can't really go very far in describing dependencies in statistics. So you really need a different language. Um, and that language um, uh, uh, is rooted in um, thinking about dependencies, patterns, emergence of collective behaviors, nonlinear dynamics, um, and, and so on and so on. Um, and I can tell you a little bit more about sort of how we discovered uh, the real roots of the breakdown of statistics and, and calculus, if you'd like. But the basic idea is that once you have to go beyond statistics, um, you really need to think very differently about how we talk about the behavior of systems. And because people have studied statistics so extensively and we use it so much in science but also in public discourse, uh, we actually are missing many of the key concepts uh, not just the mathematics, but many of the key concepts that are needed in talking about uh, dependencies. Um, and so uh, this is sort of the origins of the field of complex systems or complexity. How do we describe um, the dependencies in systems? And um, I can say more about why that's particularly important today, but maybe you have some other questions. Well, I, I'm trying to think, like, just for somebody who's never heard of this stuff before, I mean, to say, for instance, studying a market or studying an ecosystem or studying, let's say, the climate, like it seems to me that these are three obvious examples of things that if you if you try and study them in the typical kind of enlightenment, um, Baconian sense where, okay, we're going to break this thing down to its constituent elements and then we're going to study its constituent elements and then somehow that is going to give us predictive power of what the how the the overall system is going to work well it actually doesn't work that way right i mean so right. um once you've acknowledged that how do you make sense of something like an ecosystem or a climate or a market when the constituent elements are largely unknowable and the interactions are largely unknowable how do you make sense of something like that so I, I don't want to push sort of the unknowability too far. We know what the elements are. We know kind of how they interact with each other. What the hard part is understanding how things behave collectively, how they come together in the behaviors that we see. And, and the easiest kinds of things maybe for people to think about is like a fad. You know, uh, a year from now, it's really hard to know what people will be buying in terms of clothing. I mean, we expect maybe fads of today will survive till next year, but maybe something else entirely will come up or some new toy or uh, a new game, you know, like Pokemon uh, uh, became a tremendous sensation in, uh, uh, in electronic devices, uh, different from the original uh, Pokemon cards or other use of that uh, brand. Um, and, and the question is, um, if we if we realize that that's happening in the world, um, and so a faithful or, or, or effective understanding of the world has to describe that, what are the kinds of things that we need to do in order to capture that? And um, the key thing is that, um, if, again, going back to statistics, an average over everybody and what they're doing 
is really ineffective at describing these kinds of behaviors. It doesn't capture it. Yeah. And instead, we have to think about the dynamics of collectivity itself, um, how things grow and fade, uh, and that's true about markets, right? So panics, right? Yesterday, there was a big drop on the market, um, and um, uh, describing that um, using sort of the average of what's happened over time uh, is not an effective language. It doesn't capture uh, the behavior, and it's not going to help us in describing its dynamics. So traditional economics doesn't have the mathematical frames said differently. They make assumptions that kind of exclude this from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, if you've already started your assumptions uh, and excluded it, uh, then where do you go from there? Yeah, well, my, it's funny because my, my wife was a day trader on Wall Street for uh, for a number of years when she was in her 20s, and she she worked for Daytech. She was one of the people who worked for Daytech. And she said they specifically would not hire people who had degrees from business schools or uh, economists because they they were the, the worst people because they come in and they think they understand how markets work and they think they understand how the stock... And that that sort of arrogance prevents them from actually seeing how things really work, which is very, it's very emotional. It's very weird. (laughs) And so they would instead take people who had degrees in something completely different, like, you know, music or art history. And because those people, you could actually just teach them uh, from the ground up, right? How things, how were, but it's very similar. Uh, The way that they would teach them is, was, was this kind of very intuitive, bizarre, way of understanding how markets work and saying, you know, they're, they're quite irrational, you know, like they don't, doesn't, or seemingly irrational, right? Yeah. Well, human brains are designed, let's say, better for the real world than the math that we develop. The math, the statistics and calculus are uh, uh, mathematics, and their assumptions are very powerful, right? They, they really helped us study many things. And one shouldn't say that they're not applicable. They are applicable as long as you confine them to the domains and and, um, and consequences for which the assumptions apply. And truth is, even sometimes beyond where the standard assumptions apply. Um, but there is a, a barrier beyond which you cannot go. And, and current market dynamics um, uh, is way outside the, uh, let's say, the the applicability of those assumptions. And that has to do with really what's happening in society more than the sort of nature of markets. Markets are, uh, can behave in different ways. Sometimes they would behave consistent with statistics. By the way, that behavior would be really boring. (laughs) Really boring, right? Because the average... And standard deviation being a good description of what's going on, well, today is kind of like yesterday and the day before and the day before that. And, and you know, there are markets or there have been times in markets where that's true. Um, and then, you know, statistics holds. Um, and, you know, if you kind of squint your eyes and don't look very carefully, you might deceive yourself into thinking that that's something like what's happening today. But it's really not. Yeah. Um, so but you, you say that that's it has to do with um, 
with society, but doesn't it also have to do with uh, the algorithms now? I mean, I, I remember I just read uh, about a month or two ago, I read the book Deep Pools finally. I mean, Jaffer Ali recommended that book a long time ago. I finally got around to reading it. But I mean, one of the things that comes through there is that uh, the people who came up with this system, you know, coming up with these algorithms that would, that was supposed to simplify the market and make the market more transparent and more sort of democratizing the market and things like that. It actually has resulted in precisely the opposite. It's created a market that is way, way more complex and fast moving. And it's, you know, I mean, he, he ends that book by saying that, you know, the market very soon could be so complicated that it will exceed our abilities, even if like incredibly intelligent people, it will exceed their ability to understand it. Well, I mean, so there are, there are a few things that are really worth uh, talking about in that. First of all, I mean, you talk about the motivations. I, I don't know that um, those are really motivations that people had in developing those systems. But first of all, I, I don't know that... Well, he, he says Josh Levine, definitely, right. that was his... Uh, the guy yeah. who, who built Island and who you know worked with Daytech. That yeah. He, Josh Levine, very much was one of these wide-eyed idealists, these kind of libertarian techie guys, right? Like... But I don't know that I would distinguish, you know, the technology from the society. I know people like to do that. But, you know, we are a society that uses technology since the Iron Age or before, you know, agriculture and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the other thing is that markets fundamentally have a purpose. And this is something that uh, leaves the room sometimes when people who are traders talk about the markets. Their role is to set prices. And the people who put their companies into play on a stock market, they're expecting a certain uh, kind of behavior that makes sense in that context i.e. the price has to reflect the value of the company. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the markets today, because of both social and technological aspects, are beginning and in some ways have already violated some of those basic assumptions, um, it actually makes sense that companies would stop using markets. Mm-hmm. And if you say that for a moment, and then you look at the data, it's true. The U.S. stock market has lost substantial fraction. I think it's, uh, it's down uh, half as many companies as it was 15 years ago. Don't quote me on that. I mean, I know it's on the, on the audio tape, but one should really look up the numbers. But there's been a substantial decline in the number of, of actively traded uh, companies. Yeah, well, the first time I heard somebody say what you're just saying... I I was completely flabbergasted. I actually just it took me a long time to sort of. My uncle started a, a a software company with a couple of his friends, and it's it's become very very successful. It's here in Montreal. They now have I don't know like three hundred employees, and they're they very they're doing very very well. But when they um, when they first started doing very very well, they were given 
Uh, there were a number of people who wanted to go public and be traded on the on the markets. And my my uncle again and again said, no, this is a really bad idea. We should not. And this was when the tech bubble was in full swing. It's not mm -hmm. afterwards, right? And his reasoning was, uh, he, I asked, he explained it to me. He said, well, the problem is, is once you get on the market, then you are at the mercy of a, a system that is in, incredibly short-sighted and irrational. So the kind of business we're in, um, we need to... Uh, we need to have a, a highly trained workforce and we need to be thinking about what's going to be needed five years from now, which means we have to not only take care of our existing products and, and things like that, we have to be putting money into R&D and trying to get new contracts and trying to come up with new projects. So that means that sometimes we're going to have like a six month period where things are sort of slow. And according to the market, they would say, well, your quarterly sort of profits have been low, so we want you to uh, lay off one third of your workforce. Well, if we do that, then when we get the next big contract, which we will, we always do, then suddenly, rather than being able to get to work on that immediately, we will have to invest a huge amount of time and resources in hiring new people and training them. And so now it's it means that we're, we can't really get to the job. And so one of the reasons why we've been able to beat our competitors again and again, even in places where our competitors have much lower labor costs, is because we're not following the logic of the market. And I thought that is completely bizarre. Like Yeah. Well, in principle, you realize, of course, that that's totally against what economics of markets is supposed to be because the economics of markets is supposed to anticipate, right, in fundamental theoretical economics, the, the right way to structure a company in some sense, the right way to finance it, the right way to do all this stuff, because you do the decisions based upon future consequences. Mm -hmm. Now, the dynamics of markets today manifestly doesn't do that, and then the question is why? And the answer is because... That's not really a description of how markets work. It's kind of this mathematical, um, let's be honest, fantasy that economists have dreamed up. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the dynamics of markets uh, that you're describing is only the first kind of, let's say, or, or one of the kinds of problems that economic markets have today in their valuation of, of companies. Um, and in their um, in that process, so but we have these two very different views of what a market is. One is a market is a place that um, determines prices, and the other one is a place that you go in order to make money by trading. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the trading view of it treats the dynamics as its own thing. And the fundamental economics part is supposed to say that the price is a, is a valid reflection of the value of the company, right? Their price and value are kind of the same thing because markets, that's what markets do. Mm -hmm. um, so um, uh, there are various problems with it, but it's possible to make it a lot worse Right? You can sort of have markets be kind of okay at price setting. 
Um, and then you can have markets that have nothing to do with real prices. And an example, or a short-time example of that, was the flash crash when you know stocks lost, you know some stocks lost 98% of their value, right, mm -hmm. in in a few minutes, and no one claimed that that was real, um, and um, and in fact trades were reversed that were beyond I don't remember what it was 40 or 60%. Go ask the SEC why they set that number, mm -hmm. um, but uh, um, the point is that. When markets fail intrinsically on a day-to-day -day basis, if you will, in reflecting value of companies, then the motivation for using them in their economic role can and should disappear. And that's been a problem not just in, in equity, i.e. stock markets, but also in commodity markets, i.e. food, metals, energy prices over the last few decades. And um, and I can I don't know how much you want to go into markets, but I can explain why that happened and how that happened. Oh, please, please do. Please do. I mean, I, I find that the evolution of markets to be just... It's, you think about how they emerged, right? I, I, I love how, like, Yuval Noah Harari, like, talks about how this is, you know, one of the most amazing things that humans have ever invented is, you know, markets. But initially, you'd have people that were investing into in the long-term profitability of a venture. And now people can be sort of, their money is being invested by an algorithm that buys and sells 10,000 times in a minute. <laughs> I mean, it, it's insane. <laughs> And the funny thing is that the latter is not entirely ridiculous. It just turns out that there is an extent of which that people do that that makes it ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, but let me take a step back then. If you want to sort of hear the story, we have a very sort of fundamental philosophical, really, uh, really ideological issue. And that is the, um, this concept of markets as being better than um, dictatorship. Let's just say it that way. Better mm -hmm. than someone simply saying, this is the price. And we know that someone saying this is the price is a problem. And we saw that because... Um, uh, it didn't work practically, i.e. in the Soviet Union where they set prices, if you will, mm -hmm. and they organized the economy by dictate uh, compared to the development of Western economies that were incredibly successful relative to that. Mm -hmm. And so we learned pragmatically that that was not a good idea. And we also have mathematics, i.e. the traditional mathematics of economics that has some problems and we could talk about them, but let's just say um, price setting is supposed to work for a very good reason because the price is supposed to make the most use of available supply and relate that to available demand, i.e. supply and demand are supposed to match. And in doing so, in adjusting supply and demand, it really is supposed to take the best advantage of the available resources uh, for the purposes of societal benefit. And so economics is a public good idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it really is, right? It's a 
as opposed to coercion, as opposed to someone just telling us what the prices should be. Mm -hmm. So that's very nice. Uh, we know also when markets break down. And it's obvious. When there's a monopoly, someone is setting the price. Mm -hmm. So in the case of monopolization, you don't have a market. And in that limit or in that context, markets fail. So we have to be very careful that markets not go into a monopoly and prevent companies from gaining monopolies, which we're not doing very much of today. I, we're not stopping monopolies. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's kind of fundamental to making economics work the way it's supposed to. Now, it turns out, if, you th if we think about it for a minute, that markets are therefore not intrinsically stable. That means that if you let them alone for long enough, they will go to a monopoly and then they won't be a market. Mm -hmm. So uh, to say that what you want is a free market, and now we go into the ideology part here, the free market versus dictator, yes, we want a free market to set prices, but we can't leave markets to themselves. There has to be policies heretic <laughs> in libertarian circles you've, you've automatically in some libertarian circles you've automatically committed heresy by saying that exactly but, yeah. but the whole point is that <laughs> structures that don't exist you can fantasize i mean you can create fantasies but markets don't are not self-consistent now what that really means is that there are two different kinds of regular rules one is where people set prices. You shouldn't set the prices. But the other is where you set rules that enable structurally the dynamics of markets to be what they should be, i.e. the dynamics that creates price setting. Mm -hmm. And people actually understood this for many years uh, because of real-world experience. So they didn't have the theory because that's a complex system science kind of thing, uh, why these things fail. Um, but they had the experience of it, and the experience of it is market crashes. This is the um, whatever, I f always forget the name of these flowers in Britain that, that went crazy in prices. Oh, no, no, the, the, the tulips. 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 That was a famous one. Yeah, that was. Uh, I right. think it was in in Amsterdam. Well, in like wasn't in, it the tulips? Yeah, right? they they, they okay. just went absolutely. This one of the biggest explosions in price ever, and then it all That's crashed. Right. right? Yeah. And then there was you know the nineteen twenty nine crash or whatever the stock market crash. There was the, and 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 these happened in various different markets. So people created rules. Now what those rules actually did was affect the dynamics of markets in order to prevent fads and panics. Um, and those are not the same kind of monopolies that we talked about before, but they're dynamical monopolies. When everyone gets on what they call the bandwagon, right? Mm -hmm. And you know they drive the prices up and then they drive the prices down because they're following the trend in a way that creates this um, behavior that's self-reinforcing. And those kinds of behaviors are basically intrinsic, if you will, to both the, the behavior and the failure of markets. Mm -hmm. 
and it's so it's a it's it's a kind of monopoly, right? It's a monopoly where where everyone's doing the same thing, even though in principle they should be acting independently in order for markets to function correctly. So you you basically your idea of a, a perfectly regulated market would be that you have um, some sort of regulatory power that steps in when things are are too hot or or getting too cold like if if, Actually, there's a, it, if there's a panic in either direction you step in and say whoa 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 let's you know cool off here well so it turns out that the kinds of regulations that were developed were not extrinsic but they were intrinsic they they regulated the behaviors of people on the market the microdynamics of what people did in trading and the a few, one of them was on commodity markets, you were prevented from owning more than a certain fraction of uh, one particular option. Mm-hmm. On the stock market, the, the rule that was, uh, in, uh, was developed, uh, and I can tell you the story of that too, was the, called the uptick rule. What it did is that if you are going to short sell stocks, so you borrow stock, so you don't own that stock, and you sell it, um, you're not allowed to sell it when the price is moving down, only when the price is moving up. That's why it's called the uptick. Mm-hmm. On a price going up, you could sell it. And that rule was in place from about 1928, if I remember correctly. It was put into place by Joseph Kennedy, the first SEC chairman. Uh, and uh, he, you know, when Roosevelt was asked why he put him into office, uh, he said it takes a crook to catch one uh, because <laughs> the, the, the unofficial but surely uh, reasonably validated story is that the Kennedy fortune came from market manipulation. Um, <laughs> and, and so uh, the rule prevents bandwagon effects on downward moving prices. So if people start selling the you know, if you own something and you sell it, you don't want to drive the price down. So you sell a little bit and you sell another little bit and you sell another little bit so that you don't perturb the price. But if you don't own the stocks, then you want to sell them fast in order to drive the prices down. And that can be something that's intentional, i.e. you want to manipulate the market, Mm -hmm. or it can be not intentional. It's sometimes hard to distinguish, but there, there are cases and cases. Uh, sometimes it's obvious that it's intention. Hmm. And in any case, um, uh, that rule um, was around from 1928 to guess when? When? 2007, July 6th. Oh, oh my God. Really? Yeah. And the oh. SEC repealed it. They said, you look at their documents, and I can, I can even quote from you to give me a few minutes, but it doesn't really matter. They said, the market is transparent and we don't have to have these rules. Manipulation is, is anyway forbidden by the underlying regulations. And so uh, we're good, they said. Wow. It's, it's uh, amazing. We just, we never learn, do we? Like it's, well, we do learn, but then we quickly just go about forgetting it. It's, well, you know, there's kind of forgetting and there's kind of intentional forgetting. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of objection to the repeal of the uptick rule. In fact, the, the majority of comments, by wide margin, on the SEC repeal of that 
was against the repeal, and then later they, they were debating reinstalling it. <clears throat> There's a whole history of the public response. And, um, Kramer, the guy who has this TV show, he was very much against it, and they had letters signed by lots of people. Um, and they repealed it anyway. And, in, and I actually was down at the SEC the day before they then instated an alternative. They, they made a choice about what to do. This was after the market had gone totally haywire. Um, and they haven't uh, reinstated it. They reinstate what they call, uh, uh, um, um, what is it, a, um, uh, when you have, um, sorry, there's a, a trigger. There's a trigger when stocks go down by more than 10%, I think it is. Then you have the optic rule apply for that day and the next day. So it's, a, mm -hmm. it's an alternative optic rule, it's called. But in any case, um, the... Um, um, the, um, what was I going to say? The point is that there were a lot of people that said we need the optic rule, but the SEC said that they listened to some, the advice of some hedge funds. Mm -hmm. Now, so it's not entirely just that people forgot. And that's also true in the commodity space. There were specific organizations, let's say, um, and in that case, uh, a lot of it was uh, Goldman Sachs and Barclays and uh, Deutsche Bank that created index funds in the commodity space that were um, would have been uh, benefited from repeal of the rules, the position limits uh, that were limiting uh, the commodity trading. Um, so bottom line, these rules that were developed in order to limit uh, clearly both the uh, intrinsic negative dynamics of markets, but also the intentional manipulation of markets, uh, were repealed during a period of time that uh, was just a, about a decade, right? From 1999, uh, the commodity market regulations were repealed to 2007 when the stock markets... Now, of course, they were being undermined uh, before that, uh, but not to that extent. Now, what we've done as a result is we've created markets or we've led to having markets that are really intrinsically unstable. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, here in Canada, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this, but Canada is pretty much the only industrialized country that was not affected by the crash, right? And the reason why we were not affected by the crash was because none of those um, regulations were repealed. We still had uh, a banking sector that was um, quite heavily regulated, right? And what's interesting is the prime minister... Uh, Stephen Harper, who was elected, he had actually campaigned and said he he was a very uh, libertarian conservative, and he said, you know, markets are magic and all this stuff. And he was campaigning on the idea that he's going to, like, just liberate the strength of the Canadian economy by getting rid of all these regulations and things like that. And then before he got in, the whole thing crashed. And so he got in, he was like, hmm, we're the only ones that haven't been affected by this. Maybe, maybe like, uh, we should keep these regulations in place. But anyway, he, he was in, um, he was in power for 
for quite a long time. Then he got out and he recently just came out with a, a new book. It came out uh, two weeks ago and I read it. It's very interesting. And he, he says that basically the, what he calls market fundamentalists, he said he was very sort of sold on market fundamentalism and he's, he's come to view it with a, a great deal of suspicion. He said, you know, markets are, are amazing and they work very, very well most of the time. Um, but sometimes they don't, and it's good that to have uh, to have p- things in place to sort of deal with these market failures. Yeah. But he, and he, he basically he makes this really interesting comparison. He says basically, uh, market fundamentalists are are to the right in the 21st century what doctrinaire Marxists were to the left in the 20th century. They're a menace. They're they're ideologues who are way to are, are wedded to theory mar, far more than observing what's really happening and yeah, that so, they're, they're a yeah. menace right yeah so this business about ideology and ideologies not working in the real world is really something that I think uh, requires uh, a wider discussion um, uh, building on on ideology is a very poor foundation um, and the part of the point of complex system science, which is where we started this, is that because we can go past the superficial descriptions of systems, we can really understand what is working and what is not working. And so we've actually been able to analyze the dynamics of markets and uh, show where markets fail. And one of the best examples of that is actually in the, it's in the commodity markets, but it's specifically about food. Um, there was a tremendous peak in food prices in 2007 and 8, and another one in 2010 and 11. And in that... Um, I remember it, it well, it, yeah. A friend of mine yeah. was uh, running a restaurant, and the price of... He sort of like makes kind of Malaysian, South Asian food. It's but he said the price of rice went so high that it was actually cutting into his bottom line so much that he was potentially not going to be profitable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's and now you're talking about the situation for you know a place that's using processed food and where service prices are the are usually the largest. But imagine what that means for people who are living off of a dollar a day. Mm-hmm. And that's a large percentage of the global population and in, in, in predominantly in certain parts of the world. Um, and what we saw as a result of those food prices from the point of view of the downstream effects was riots, food riots mm-hmm. in 2007-8 and then the Arab Spring in 2010 and 11. And the Arab Spring has had, you know, global, far-reaching, long-duration consequences, including, you know, everything that we think about that's happening in Syria today and many things that we don't even know about that's happened in Syria, mm-hmm. including the refugee crisis and all of the suffering and, uh, that has been a consequence of that. And, and, and don't forget Libya and don't forget um, other places in North Africa and the Middle East that were mm-hmm. affected by this. So, excuse me. So um, that um, 
that is part of the cascade, right, where we have food prices giving rise to um, lots of bad effects. But the other direction is that where did those peaks come from? And those peaks turn out, according to our analysis, to be times where markets are so haywire that supply and demand don't match. Yeah. That the food prices went up even though food was available. I know. It's so weird. I mean, like if there's a drought and and suddenly, you know, the annual wheat production is down by by 15 percent, you could it makes sense intuitively why. Oh, yeah. OK, so wheat prices are are more expensive now. But like if you have a year where there's nothing obvious like that and suddenly wheat prices go way up, you're just thinking, well, this market is not working in the most basic sense that a market's supposed to work. I mean, like yeah. this. So that, that's it. I mean, economics is there because we are supposed to do the best with the resources that we have. And in this case, prices were double what they should have been. The people who were rioting were rioting because they couldn't eat, even though you know, the grains were, were, were accumulating in inventories. And mm-hmm. it's a little bit funny because the inventory... You know, people buy prices out of sync because they're futures market. So the inventories increased later, half a year to a year later um, than the riots happened. But it was that food that they were being priced out of, you know, strangely, because they didn't sell them the food when they wanted it because they thought that there would be, you know, kind of more demand later, but it was fake fake mm. demand based upon bandwagon effects of people buying and driving the prices up even though it wasn't valid pricing. So we have this really basic breakdown of economics. Mm-hmm. And we have people in, you know, uh, including Paul Krugman, who is a very well-known economist, as, as you must know, mm-hmm. Uh, saying, no, well, you know, this isn't uh, out of whack because we don't see, you know, uh, uh, inventory accumulation. But he forgot that it was a futures market and the accumulation happened half a year to a year later. So so the, the problem is that the traditional mathematics is not adequate for describing these departures from economic equilibrium. And, and that's where we need complex system science uh, to go beyond, again, this superficial description um, that doesn't really capture the dependencies that happen when people do things in fads and panics um, and undermine uh, the market dynamics themselves. So on a, on a sort of just on a broad sense, if you're trying to understand complex systems, you you have to move to a probability model, right? I mean, where you just, you look at, in the same way we think about uh, the subatomic realm right now, that if you want to understand what's going on in the subatomic, right, you you can't talk, uh, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? You can't talk with any specificity about precisely where things are. You talk about a pattern of probability and that what's happening is, is going to fall within a pattern of probability. Is it the same so, thing with com- complex systems? Or? So actually, I, I apologize for, for correcting you, but probabilities are what statistics is about. Mm-hmm. 
It's supposed to be. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but let's talk about what complex systems is really about. What it's really about is realizing that there are more dimensions, if you will, to talk about than just the average and the standard deviation. And in order to discover those dimensions, there is a way of thinking, it's a conceptual way, but it's also a mathematical approach, which is multi-scale. You have to see the details as well as not the details. The reason why this is important is that when I say, well, you know, you can't just describe the average, well, what most people will think to do is they'll say, okay, let's describe more details. And then they describe more and more and more and more details, but you never know where to stop. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to describe a social system, you don't stop until you describe genetics and then the vibrations of water molecules and so on. So, and then down to quantum mechanics, if you think, you know, that that's something fun to add. Um, but really, the problem is way back up at the global scale, what you need is to figure out what additional few variables are actually important in describing the system. So is weather important? Is, um, you know, currency exchange rates, is that important? Is you know, uh, what the farmer had for lunch important? And the answer is the last one, probably not. But the former ones, you don't know. So you have to figure it out. And the key aspect of our analysis is actually understanding uh, fundamentally what's relevant and what's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's important is not just because there exist relevant and irrelevant things, but because until you figure it out what's relevant and separated it from what's irrelevant, you'll never be able to describe the behavior of the system. Yeah. Because well, if you include a thousand factors or 20,000 factors, uh, you'll just get lost in the details. Yeah. Well, I, I see this also in not just you know, in markets, but in uh, one of the fields I'm really interested in is in ecology, right? So if you're trying to understand why a particular species of plant or animal is having a big effect on us or is seeming to have a big effect. Like let, let's say for instance, one of the um, concepts that I find really annoying in a lot of uh, ecology today, which is the, the, the notion of an in invasive species, right? Absolutely. I, I, I can't stand this notion, right? Because it's, it, it, it is, it is completely something that is, 95% uh, of the time, I would say, is like it's locked in an old way of thinking about how systems work. And so if, you, if you're going to talk about an invasive species, usually uh, if a species is, is seeming to have um, a big kind of outsized effect on a system, sometimes perhaps if you're dealing with an isolated island in the middle of nowhere, yeah, okay, a, a species of plant or animal can show up and cause all sorts of havoc. But if you're dealing with a more complicated, competitive ecosystem, like what you would find anywhere in North America, for instance, well, in those systems, if an invasive species is coming in and is seeming to do a lot of damage, it's probably because the system is weak in other, is inherently weak for other reasons. And so it's not really the fault of that particular 
uh, variable, that particular plant or animal, it's there's a, a deeper weakness in the system that needs to be addressed, right? In the same way that like if you are uh, dying of, uh, if you have, uh, if you've come down with like AIDS, right, which is really weakening your immune system, like the person who dies of AIDS, they don't die of AIDS, right? They die of like a cold or some, you know, random thing because their immune system is so weakened. Right. So there's a, there's a truth to what you say. Um, if you're thinking about kind of an individual event, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, the invasion of something. And, and ecosystems are constantly changing, and the balance of the species is changing. And the whole point of evolution is that you introduce new variants and you create change in an yeah. ecosystem. And in that sense, what you're saying is really true. Um, but there's a flip, there's a different story which turns out to be really important today. Um, and that has to do with the, the reason that we have many invasive species today is because the world is so connected. Mm-hmm. And because the world is so connected, you know, something over here can go to someplace over there. And so something that's evolved for one ecosystem and is not kind of let's say, playing nice in another ecosystem and might, you know, sort of devastate it is, you know, we'll go over there. And that's why we talk about invasive species. Um, and, and the question is, what, why would we talk about that differently? You know, maybe, you know, hey, the, the, you know, strong ones survive. That's the whole point of evolution. Let's just do it. Um, it turns out that there is a reason that that's a problem. What's and that? this comes up with, in work that we did um, that, believe it or not, is totally directly related to pandemics and Ebola and our work on, on, on the problems with global diseases, which turns out to be very, very similar to the problem with invasive species. And the reason is kind of the following. If you just follow a particular local ecosystem and you watch it, what will happen is that there will be, all the time will be introduced species or or types of a particular species that are more aggressive and kind of will devastate their own food supply. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they just eat more and because they eat more, they rapidly grow and reproduce, but then they use up all the food and then they die out. Yeah. And because they die out, then the more, you know, the ones that eat less and are less aggressive are the ones that actually survive. And so an ecosystem is a balance of this process of, of exploitation mm-hmm. and self-extinctions. And those self-extinctions that cause one species to disappear in one place um, they then leave, once they, that one goes extinct, then the ones that in other places were less aggressive, they come to fill in the void. Now, it turns out that if you add long-range transportation, so things going from one place to another, then um, the extinctions are less effective. And what you have is you have larger and larger extinctions. Sorry. Right, they they don't eliminate the aggressive varieties. You have larger and larger extinctions and more and more aggressive varieties. And then eventually the entire system goes extinct. Mm -hmm. 
So um, it turns out that this, we published a paper about this in 2006. And in that paper, we showed that there was a sharp transition to extinction. And the model is good model for invasive species, and it's also a good model for diseases. Yeah. Well, I mean, we also, when you're not connected to, and this is, it applies to diseases, it applies to all sorts of things. If, if you have a, a really strong uh, forest fire or a, a yeah. pandemic or something like that, and it, and it's in an isolated population, well, it'll just wipe out uh, maybe 80% of that population, and then that's it, right? And like, Right. But if everybody's connected, I mean, I remember looking at a, a global map. This was just very, very powerful. It was in a, a class I took with this guy. He was an absolute genius. Um, but he showed a map of the areas that were affected by the Great Depression. And it's so obvious. It's the, basically the areas that were connected to the global economy right. were the areas that were affected. So That's it. A, a whole bunch of France was just completely unaffected mm -hmm. by the Great Depression because they were mainly kind of living these economies where people did a lot of barter and people, they produced yeah. the food, they ate it. They were, they were disconnected from these large markets. So if yeah. the market caught a cold, uh, it didn't wipe them out, you know? Exactly. But today, because everything is connected and increasingly connected, we're at greater risk. So, so in that paper, we, we talked about invasive species briefly, but we also warned specifically about Ebola. Because we said, you know, Ebola is this, you know, disease in these isolated villages in Africa. And if you use statistics, you would say, well, every subsequent disease will be the same. And we said, watch out. And what happened, of course, in 2014 was this outbreak that was 10 times larger than any previous outbreak. And not only was it 10 times larger with about 1,000 people dead, um, if there hadn't been special kinds of intervention, and we don't have time to talk about it today, but people were projecting 10 million people dead. Yeah. And that's not even including if it escaped West Africa. Yeah. And that was a reasonable guess. It, was like a, it wasn't yeah. a crazy guess. It was the basic, you know, that was the scientific, uh, you know, we were involved actually in, in talking with people about how to change the response in order to stop the outbreak. But, and we're involved now, there's an outbreak going on in, in East DRC, and um, it's also now getting out of control, at least a little bit. There were um, uh, 30 confirmed cases just this past week. Um, and um, that's a lot more than the 10 that were happening a few weeks ago. So um, we have a problem with global connectivity, and it's relevant to economics, it's relevant to uh, diseases, it's relevant to other things, um, and um, we need to understand better how to deal with it. It's not a, it's not a small problem, right? Yeah. It's this cascading domino effects where the dominoes get larger and then they create these global crises. Um, and there are kind of two things that we can do, and both of them are important. Um, one is that we need to, under, we need to uh, figure out the degree to which we 
uh, really need to benefit from global connectivity and limit somehow the connectivity, as much as that's not a popular statement, it's an important one. Um, but the other thing is we need to do better decisions about things that we do, like um, not deregulating our markets in a way that makes them unstable. And on the regulation side, and we haven't talked about this, but it's again in the news, is the ethanol. Burning food is a bad idea when people are hungry. Yeah. Um, and, and the point is that decisions that we make uh, are global, because that's the whole point of global connectivity. And we want the world to be connected because it gives us tremendous benefits. But when it's connected, we need to make really good decisions. And we're not doing that yet. Um, mm. Well, I, we I seem to be moving towards the, homogeneity. Well, that seems to be always the, like, we, we're supposed to have the same political system everywhere, the same social system everywhere, the same, you know, legal system everywhere. But, but in fact, the, the more that we move towards monoculture, the more fragile we become, right? I mean, yeah, but actually the world is not going that way. And that's one of the most interesting things that's happening today, which is that... Um, despite the fact that we're becoming globally connected and you would think that everyone talking to everyone else would all have the same opinion, right? We'd all go into groupthink uh, and everyone would, you know, whatever, write apps for the app store or something like that. That would be the economic <laughs> activity of the world. Um, but it's not what's happening. In fact, different parts of the world and are going in different directions culturally, socially, ideologically, um, and that's true even in the United States, right? And I don't know what's happening in Canada, but um, I'm going to guess that over time there are going to be local cultures that are going to be becoming increasingly rather than decreasingly dominant in much of the world. And huh. that's really what's happening. And, yeah, I, and, it's funny because I don't, I, I definitely see that there's diversity, of course, but I, it seems to me that uh, on, on many different metrics, we're we're moving towards far less of that. I mean, just to give you one random example, I remember during the Great Depression, uh, they had right, the the WPA, right? And they were just putting people to work on different things. Well, one of the things that they they did is they uh, make work project is they had people go all around the United States and to record um, speech patterns. And I've gone to the Jefferson. Um, reading room in Washington, D.C., in the Library of Congress, and I've listened to this. It is absolutely fascinating. You can hear that uh, there were just hundreds of different um, accents all over yeah. the United States. There, And they were like, there was literally an accent that was from one part of Vermont, and then in the next town, they would have a different accent. And there were all this huge, but then because of radio, it had this homogenizing effect, and so by the time you get, uh, by the time you get to this sort of the mid middle decades of the twentieth century, kind of the sixties, suddenly you only have whereas you once had hundreds of different accents, you now have you know let's say like eight or nine different cool. main accents, right? Sure. And then as you get uh, to television, that decreases even more, and so now. The uh, it's having a kind of a smoothing off all of the rough edges, right? And this applies to many other things. It's not just accents. It's uh, that. Well, but get... that's that's what was happening. But today we're going the other way. That's really, okay. this is the social fragmentation that's happening today. That huh. we're having 
different parts of the country um, really, really fundamentally disagreeing with the other parts of the country about the directions to go, decisions to, to take. And um, that's not just in the United States, it's, it's globally, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's a divergence of cultures. Um, you, know, you know, we tried to create the European Union, and now we have Brexit. We have, you know, Spain trying to fragment itself or not, depending upon who you talk to. And, and, and that's in, in Western countries, and if you go to other places, right, there is a, there's a lot of social fragmentation going on mm -hmm. um, all around the world. And so the concept of homogenization is not really working, even though it seemed that way, especially, you know, let's say after the demise of the Soviet Union, you know, everyone was going to be a, um, a democracy with, you know, particular values and we're all going to... End of history, things. baby. <laughs> what? The end of history, right? We're the like, end of history, yeah, exactly. Liberal humanism dominant. <laughs> Whoops. <exactly. laughs> Not a chance. Yeah, it's I mean, like you, you see his new book, Identity, where he just he says, like, no, <laughs> we were wrong about that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so we have, I mean, I, I don't know how much time we have, but we have this growing complexity of global divergent societies. Um, and really the biggest challenge today, and this is the exciting thing from the point of view of complex systems, uh, for me, is this, um, is how do we work together, actually? And, and the, the story behind that is that we are a global collective. There's no doubt about it. We are, we are collaborating globally, right? I mean, every, all of the economic activity that's happening around the world and the information flows and, you know, I mean, how the, the system works is actually collaborative. It doesn't mean that people are not fighting each other for various reasons, but the underlying behavior of the system is incredibly collaborative. Mm -hmm. And in that context, somehow the unmet challenge is still to figure out how we work together despite our divergent cultures and perspectives. And that's happening I mean, again, in Canada, I have no idea how, how, how that's going on, but it happens all the way down to the interpersonal level. People are um, developing divergent views of even their local worlds. You know, what's important? What should we focus on? Mm -hmm. What do we care about? And uh, lifestyles are diverging and so on. And, and yet somehow we have to work together uh, in this globally um, co collective sense. And if you remember that complex systems are all about emergent collective behaviors, well, that's really exciting. We have this um, divergence of the individual components, i.e. people and groups and, and um, regions of the world. Uh, and at the same time, we have this incredible collectivity which is a functional collectivity, right? We are building cars in many parts of the world or electronics devices or whatever it is, and they're all actually able to work despite the fact that parts and, and labor and, and everything else happens in many different places. So it is a functional system despite its manifest and apparent dysfunctions. 
So the, the creation of these sort of, if we think about it analogically to, to climates, right? So the creation of these sort of microclimates uh, from a complexity standpoint actually would give the system as a whole much more, make it much more robust, right? It would, it would make it stronger. Right. And, yeah, and let's that go I, back. That to I find the, fascinating. I mean, that that's amazing. Like, and let's go back to sort of the economics picture, which, uh, despite uh, its other problems, has some validity in this context. With the idea that different groups, say regions, should be focused on what they do best and contribute their product and their capabilities to the global economic activity. And in that sense, that's kind of what's happening, though it's not just economic, it's social in various ways. And um, what we now have to really understand is this um, diverging local behaviors that are both economic and social and cultural and so on, and, and how they somehow work together in this larger collectivity. and and. And a lot of the problems that we're challenged by have to do with decision-making in this context. Who should be making decisions about what? Um, and, and all of that's fascinating. And, and we see you know, the failures of dictatorships and communism. And, and we're seeing the failures of democracies. And we're learning, uh, I think, um, and we will learn, um, that there are alternatives that are even more sort of incredible and, and capable uh, but we haven't gotten there yet, and that discovery process is is a big part of what's happening in the world today. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that part of the problem in places like Canada and the United States is that we have we have systems like democratic systems of government which were set up to for a world that no longer exists. Like it was a, a world where you know it was a very small percentage of the population were urban. And most people were rural, right? So it's uh, it's very different. And now cities are basically having decisions made for them by um, people that um, have nothing, don't understand the complexity of the city at all. Right? Yeah, well, that's, that's the technical term that we really can eventually point to, which is the fact that society is is more complex in a in a technical sense means that um, the decision making process is um, not being dealt with effectively yeah so you you would say that this you know one of the if I understand you correctly one of the solutions to this problem is to actually allow allow things to move towards more fragmentation that this is not something to be feared so yes and kind of no, right? It's both. <laughs> it's both and, right? I mean, this is, you've noticed that theme in this conversation sure, already. Sure, Complex yeah. systems is, is full of paradoxes, which is why ideologies don't work. They're, yeah, it's more like a kind of a Bayesian, Bayesian sort of reasoning, right? Where you, you sort of, well, yes, it's, it's 55% yes. <laughs> yes, it's, 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 it's true under these circumstances and the opposite is true under those circumstances. And mm -hmm. that's kind of how it works. Um, and so the answer is yes, what's happening and what should happen, and hopefully will happen better as we figure out how to do it uh, more properly, is that decision-making has to be shifted downward to local decision-making uh, for some purposes. So nations 
are no longer the right nexus of decision-making for many of the local issues. And that's particularly true about things like, you know, uh, you know, uh, municipal ordinances and, and, and how people should engage locally with their, you know, I don't know, school systems and restaurants and whatever it is, those should be done more locally. Um, and then people won't be in conflict with each other because much of what people care about is, is their, you know, the things that affect their daily lives, which a lot of which should be done locally. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, um, other decisions need to be shifted up globally. And that goes back to this other issue that we have these globally cascading effects. And in order to figure them out, we have to think about them globally and not nationally, right? If you have, um, you know, corn farmers making decisions about food prices that are going to starve people in, in, in North Africa, yeah. uh, we better have decision-making that takes that into account. And, and we don't have that right now. Um, so, um, so say differently, there are, when there are decisions that inherently have global consequences, uh, we need a, a very effective, and we don't have that yet, even in structure or in, in, in pattern of behavior, a decision-making system. And I say decision-making system because um, uh, it, we really need a lot of people to be involved in decisions in order to make good decisions. Yeah, but it seems to me that one, you know, if you're dealing with Ebola or if you're dealing with um, with climate change or things like that, these are inherently such big global problems that you need to have um, international organization. You need to have uh, some sort of way that people can get together and make decisions on this stuff. So it seems to me, at least on its face, it seems like fragmentation would make it much harder to deal with things like that. Well, yeah, you know? but the, the main purpose of whatever kind of global decision-making, call it global governance, because that's kind of what it has to be, right? It's decision-making for everybody. One of the main things that it has to do is to protect the integrity of the local decision-making process so that people can go about their lives based upon their local values with some exceptions, right? I mean, we have to make sure that people are not exploiting each other and not, you know, I mean, there's there's a level at which we're, we're not going to allow local decision-making um, because of a violation of fundamental values. So there is an ideological piece somewhere, right? Again, paradox, right? Mm -hmm. we, we have to make sure that, you know, people killing people like ISIS is not allowed. Um, but uh, um, at the same time, um, uh, um, constraining decision-making um, in such a way that the global issues are dealt with properly. So, so we, have to, um, we have to abandon the um, ideological coercion. Uh, democracy is not the right thing for everybody, neither are many other different kinds of ideas about how the world should work. Um, uh, different people have different values, uh, we need to respect those values and strengthen them for people in order to have them be satisfied with their local lives and their um, you know, families or whatever it is that they engage in with locally. Um, yeah. and, and we need to take that seriously because right now we have a coercive ideological battle going on in the United States and people 
you know, don't recognize that any more than they really don't recognize the degree to which uh, global interactions are creating coercive contexts where people are trying to impose their values on other people. And that's just not going to get us to where we want to go. Yeah. At the same time, we need to build appreciation for how different groups can contribute at the global level. Yeah. Despite, no, because of those different values and things. And then beyond that, we have to say, well, yeah, we still need a global governance that makes sure that, you know, food prices don't create social disruptions and or pandemics don't happen and or global financial crises are not the norm. So how do you do that in practice? I mean, how do you, you know, like, how do you do that? So... I think you're going to have to have me back again for that <laughs> conversation. But, uh, but the real answer is that, you know, we started out the conversation um, with this idea that ideology doesn't work in the case of markets. And ideology, we, we need a group of group, you know, we need people to come together around this idea that it's the consequences of our actions that really matter. Mm-hmm. And the values that we, sh- we, we have for ourselves are not necessarily the values that, um, that are going to determine the consequences of action. So we can behave in one way in a local context, and yet we can be supportive of and engage in a decision-making process that achieves the you know, the fundamental, the most fundamental goals that we have globally, which is, you know, the health of the society as a whole, uh, the ability of, 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 of individuals to, to live lives where they are making their best contributions to society because that benefits all of us. Yeah, well, this is like when, when Nassim Nicholas Taleb says, you know, on the on the family level, I'm a socialist, on the, like, you know, city level, and he's up to, you know, libertarian at the federal level. And like, like, if you think about differing levels of complexity and different, then it gives you much more flexibility in terms of what rather than applying one particular approach to all situations, right? And then there's one other thing, which is that when you realize what that means, it really means that we have to learn how to work together. And I said this, as diverse individuals, and it's diverse individuals at the individual level. You know, it's like, you know, co-workers in a business. You know, you have people that have different skills and they work together in order to whether produce or sell or, or engage in commerce. Um, um, but it's also the different groups, you know, whether it's different companies working together in order to do things, but it's also different parts of society and different social systems um, working together in order to make the um, entire society work. And, and again, I mean, part of that has to come from an understanding of, of this uh, respect, the fundamental respect for others that says that, you know, hey, I don't really know what's best for you, and I don't really know what's best for you in a context where we're going to be contributing together. So I can't teach... You know, I'm a scientist. I really can't teach an artist how to do art. 
Uh, but I also have to understand that I can't teach him how to live his life. And, and in the meantime, um, the best thing that we can do is to sort of figure out, given how you want to do things and how I want to do things, uh, what it is that we each of us has to contribute to us doing things together. Well, on that incredibly hopeful note, <laughs> I guess we'll uh, we'll end there. We definitely need to talk again uh, more about the Ebola thing and much a number of other things. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, talking to our listeners about complexity. And it's a pleasure. Um, is there any place that people can find more about this if they want, like a, a website or? Sure. So I'm, I'm the president of the New England Complex Systems Institute, and we have a website, which is our initials, necsi.edu. We're an edu domain, um, and so we're a research and educational institution, um, and it's not that hard to find us online, and uh, we would love for uh, your listeners uh, to engage with us, and, and, and you know, going back to what I just said, learning to work together, we would very much appreciate their joining our community and our team uh, to make things happen in a better way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. All right. Take care. Take care. 